Hello, this is Michael Zuber, and I wanted to thank you for choosing to spend a little time with One Rental at a Time. My life's mission is to help investors close 1 million rental properties. In order to tackle this crazy goal, I will need your help. If you like this episode or any of the content we produce, please share it on social media. If you get one of my books or perhaps one of our 500 cards, please take a selfie and tag One Rental at a Time. Now on with the show. I don't know if you guys know this, but this is one of my favorite uh, discussions to do every week. And that is where Mr. Millennial Mike goes through our comments, finds the spicy, finds the meaningful, sometimes finds the heartfelt. And uh, he allows me to react to him in real time. Uh, Something that you all may not realize is I still reply to all my comments myself. Uh, I do not engage in uh, serial comments. So if you reply to my reply, I'll never see it. Uh, But yes, uh, I do still reply, but usually my answers are really, really short. So uh, I try. But Mike, thank you for doing this. Well, and the reason that we do this segment is because sometimes people want to get into a more engaging conversation with Zuber and they'll they'll post a comment, he'll post a response, they'll respond, and then they don't get a response to that. So that's where some of these questions come from. We actually have one of those today, as well as haters, crash bros, angry people, uh, and then people who have good questions. So we have a whole bunch of topics we're going to cover today. Uh, Things like real estate investors destroying the housing market for for first-time homeowners, uh, things like what should you do right out of house high school or balloon payments? How does that work? But what we're going to start with today is the coming opportunity in multifamily real estate that you keep citing in a lot of your videos and you've been talking about over the last probably like two years now. So this one comes from at Twanchi. He says, Mike, as a single family and small multifamily investor, I am myself to, looking to segue to find a deal in distressed major multifamily. How would you suggest you network and where and how. I think you could make a great great video about it. So Mike, what do you think? How would you advise somebody to start networking and laying the foundation to take advantage of the opportunity in larger multifamily? Well, again, I'll try to give a complete answer because I think there's a couple of ways individuals could do this. So we'll go uh, the route that I wouldn't go, but but many have. And that is to maybe become part of a, a larger syndication there's going to be lots of people that will or, yeah, will sort of future tense launch what's called distressed funds. And, you know, maybe what you want to do is you want to, you know, if you're really going after the two, the three, the 400 units, uh, A, I've never pretended to play there, don't want to. Um, but B, it's very likely just average folks would have to become part of a bigger thing. Uh, so if you're comfortable doing that, maybe raising capital, being a small LP or or a GP by name, that is that is the way you could go, right? Because there there is access uh, that individuals like you and I I don't have, but but some people have that. So look for lots of distressed funds, and this is also a shout out to LPs. A lot of you are going to start to get courted with what's called the latest distressed fund. Now keep in mind these are the same operators that probably did bad syndications and blew up. Uh, you know, they have non-recourse loans and they don't really lose anything. So just just be careful. Now, for what am I doing now and what have I done before? I think the answer really lies in networking within your local community or your buy box. Everybody should know by now, my, my market was Fresno, California. Uh, I'm going to be networking with local and community banks. There's a bank that I bank with there uh, that I bought an apartment building with in the last crash. 
uh, I think they still have only three branches. So when I go there for my yearly financial review, we, they really get to know me and I get to know them. Uh, you know, that, that's where I would do is I would, I would start to know local community banks, small institutions, not the big banks. They won't give you any time. And then second, um, commercial is a different beast. And what I would try to do in the beginning is identify the top five agents in commercial. And the best way to do that for the average person is who's got all the listings. Uh, and then you need to go, you need to get to know them. Now, keep in mind, they're going to be very standoffish. They get dozens of calls, if not hundreds of calls from, you know, bright eyed new investors, stay diligent, bring them value, uh, you know, do something for them. But those are the things that you have to do is network locally with financial institutions and the top, you know, I would, I would try to find the top five commercial agents. That's where I would go. So I think one of the questions that people would have as a follow up for that, when it comes to networking, you know, I remember when you gave me the first piece of advice you gave me when we did our first interview, like five years ago at this point, you said I needed to learn seller financing and I needed to network more. And my understanding of networking at the time was, okay, I need to talk to more people. But I think probably a follow-up question people would have is, what exactly do you talk about? How does the conversation go? Are you introducing yourself? Are you trying to provide value? I think we should talk more about what that networking actually looks like. Well, uh, so I can tell you what it's not. It's not calling someone bragging about who you are in your deep pockets and saying you want a deal, uh, which, oh, by the way, lots of people think that's the answer. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, you know, in the beginning, it's proving that you know what you're talking about. What might that look like? Hi, my name's Mike. My buy box is Gary, Indiana. I look for this or that. I see you have one listed on 123 Main Street. If you come in with that, simple communication, you're going to be taken serious. Uh, if you are, um, you know, if you want to help somebody at a bank, you could, you can open a bank, you know, bank account, right? You could do all of these things. So it is, it is providing value and proving, you know, what you're talking about and then asking questions. I think too many people see networking as let me, you know, diarrhea of the mouth. Let me just throw stuff at you and see what sticks where it should be inquisitive and asking questions and follow up and being in genuine, right? You have two ears and one mouth. Um, that's really what it should look like. I think I would be uh, remiss if I did not mention the importance of virtual networking nowadays. Um, and every single state and probably almost every single real estate market, somebody is making YouTube videos about investing in that area. And if you aren't Googling, uh, and, and looking up whoever the guy is making content for Grand Forks, North Dakota or Birmingham, Alabama, watching their videos, responding to their videos and creating that relationship, you're doing yourself a disservice because I met Mike in 2018 online and then I met him in person in 2022 in November. Uh, you can do an awful lot virtually networking with people in the comment section of YouTube or Instagram years before you meet them in person. So don't yeah, underestimate. One of my best friends, you you know, Matt, the lumberjack, he and I have never actually met in person still. Right. <laughs> Years you guys have been talking, yeah, exactly. but you've never met him. <laughs> Not in Until person. Until the 50,000 Vegas subscriber event where we will all meet. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. It's no surprise to many that apparently interest rates are a little bit higher than your average investor would like. Things are not as good as they used to be when it comes to creating cash flow. And so one of the questions that I've seen put out there multiple different times are what are the different avenues that you could use to get around 
higher interest rates. You want to buy a cash flowing deal. There's seller financing, there's paying all cash. What different avenues are there to get around these high interest rates to still find cash flow deals, Mike? Well, I, I want to be clear on this. I actually think the market we are in now might be the second best market I've been in in 20 years. Yes, I said it. What do I mean by that? My job or the best deals I've ever secured were from motivated sellers. Now, I will admit 2010 was a special year and likely never to be touched again. But over the next 12 to 24 months, I think the cycle we are in now is going to be increasingly easy to find motivated sellers. So the first answer is to do the work and write disrespectful offers and get cash. Dude, if you can get cash flow at 8% mortgages, you're doing something. And oh, by the way, if sometime in the next 20 years, rates go down to 6% and you do a term and rate refi, cash flow explodes. So first thing I want you to do is I want you to see 8% mortgage rates is a good thing because we are full of lots of lazy people. Lots of us are lazy. Lots of us tell ourselves it's impossible to find cash flow at 8%. And folks, I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying it. Do the work, write the offers, know your numbers. Know, I, I saw another question this week. Should I get a negative cash flow property, this or that? And I'm like, no, never. There's no reason ever to get that. If you're not writing the offers to get cash flow day one, what are you doing? I mean, we're not here to gamble. We're not here to do bad deals. So that's the first answer is you got to get your mind right. I really do think this will be the second easiest market to find motivated sellers in 22 years. So let's let's do that. Second, obviously, there's seller financing. Again, part of the beauty of the market we are in is it's not all about price. You can get terms. And some of the best deals I've done was paying at or near list price, but getting a below market interest rate. Right. So there's lots of possibilities. So again, I believe most investors get great deals for motivated sellers. And I think the market we're in, certainly for the next six months through the winter, it's going to be increasingly easy. So do the work, do the work, do the work. Don't write bad offers, write them, follow up. I'm getting, I'm getting three or four notes a week right now with basically the following story. Mike, I did the work. I wrote an offer. They told me to F off. I followed up in three weeks and they said, hey, is that offer still good? <laughs> Folks, it's right there for you. Just freaking do the work. So that, those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think that a lot of people are immediately reactionarily saying, oh, interest rates are too high. There's no cash flow. Well, there is still some, especially if you get that motivated seller. But it is, to their credit, hard to find some of these individuals. It's not like these deals are it's just- It's always hard. It's always hard. Come on. Then number two, when it comes to seller financing, we're actually going to talk about seller financing in the next question, or kind of. Um, seller financing is just it's just difficult to, I think, get good at it because it's a skill you have to develop yourself in terms of how to explain it intelligently to another person in a way that's going to make them like you, trust you, and then want to do it. And that skill takes practice. You got to get a lot of no's before somebody says yes. And so you just have to understand that's part of the process. You're not doing something wrong if 10 people tell you no in a row, or even if 50 people tell you no in a row, you just have to keep pushing forward. You know what? Let's Let's poke at that a little bit. So um, I don't think it's a secret to anyone that I have the remarkable ability, my superpower is to focus on a task and repeat it much longer than anyone, uh, most humans could even think is possible. 
you know, go see 12,000 YouTube videos as an example. <laughs> so one of the things I did when I switched careers from being an accountant to a pre-sales engineer, first commission-based job, you know, outside of selling hardware in high school, um, I was going up against seasoned professional salespeople in this career. And again, I'm an accountant, right? I'm I'm general ledger, debits, credits, you know, balance sheet, income debt. That's where I lived, right? So one of the things that I did is uh, I took my demo laptop, which again, we were all given, you know, some data and, you know, the application and our job was to sell it, right? So Mike, what did I do? I locked myself in a room and I gave myself a presentation like I was doing it live somewhere between 100 and 200 times ranging from 20 to 40 minutes, depending on, you know, the, the, the avenue I chose. Most people practice twice and think they got it. I must've put in, I don't know, 500 hours over 90 days. I mean, there were days, that's all I did. So why do I bring this up? Folks, if you want to get good at pitching seller financing, pitch seller finance, shoot, pitch it to your dog, pitch it to your Pitch it to the wall. Get comfortable. It takes, it's, there is no cure. There's no getting better without practice. Don't go to a seller and stumble over your words and this or that. They're just going to run away. They, they want to say no. Practice. Practice. Communication is an incredibly important skill. And most people are not born with that gift of gab or the ability to articulate well. Um, and it's funny that you talk about pitching, you know, for all those different times in a room by yourself, because while I drive around in my patrol car, oftentimes I'm having mock conversations out loud. And the funny thing is, is when I conduct a stop or I respond to an emergency, we have a little camera that turns on. The amount of times I've forgotten to turn that camera off and it captures an extra 30 minutes <laughs> of me having real estate related conversations. And then my sergeant pulls me into his office and goes, dude, you left your camera on for 30 minutes, but I got a real estate education from him. I'm like, sorry, Sarge, it's my bad. <laughs> Enjoy those. <laughs> Anyways, you have to practice. It doesn't come naturally. I mean, you need to be having fake conversations and playing the what if game. If someone's going to give you a rejection, how do you handle it? So I, I like, I like your story, Mike. Unfortunately for me, mine have just been recorded. So. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Okay. The money printer is going burr. So this one comes from at CJ-GF3OK. He says, Zuber, I'd love to get your perspective on the expansion of the monetary base. It's very easy to goose the CPI numbers, but we've printed 14% annually on average over the last 50 years. Housing can't go down significantly unless that money is destroyed or people shift their capital to other real assets like stocks or Bitcoin. The prices of scarce assets won't just fall magically unless we have a big deleveraging, which the Fed will never allow. Thus, the price of everything will continue to go up. What do you think? I don't know this individual, obviously, uh, but I'm going to guess just based on how that was phrased, they might be a Bitcoin maximalist. Because again, one of the things obviously behind Bitcoin, and I say this as somebody who has you know more than a single coin, um, the selling feature is scarcity. Or one of the selling features of scarcity. So that's it's it's kind of I get a lot of these questions from folks who have a clear slant. So maybe I'm overreading. That was my first take when I read that question. Um, but essentially, there's a couple of things. 
first off, the the money supply went up exorbitantly the last three years. That should be no secret to anyone. It should also be no secret to anyone who watches my channel that the money supply has gone negative. It's gone negative since, you know, first time since the Great Depression. So if you stop there and you want to create fear and doom, you're good, right? You got a great story. Great Depression, first time since. That's a scary headline. Mm -hmm. But if you actually zoom out and look at the chart, our money supply went up so high that coming down negative, right, negative growth, it's still wildly positive. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of money still sloshing in the system. QT is still ongoing and likely to continue so. Uh, but the general thesis of the comment, uh, scarce resource, the Fed will stop if things get walk wacky. I, I agree with, you know, g the general, you know, frame of the question, I think, or comment. For those of you out there watching, QT means quantitative tightening. Mike oh, was not actually sorry. calling me a cutie. <clears throat> Just no. kidding, Mike. Okay, no. so la last week we talked about the unbelievable merits and how desperately important it is for everybody to go to college. Mm. Okay, we didn't actually do that. You talked about college. I talked about college sucking. But one of the comments <laughs> down there on the video was what to do out of high school instead. So this comment came from Svan3878. He says, what would you recommend to someone fresh out of high school, assuming they are not going into one of those fields that we had mentioned, in other words, the fields for college, like doctor, lawyer, engineer. He says, I know that you mentioned entrepreneurs, but you have no money, no credit, and you still got to eat. What should you do coming out of high school? What did I say to that? Did you see my uh, You said, this is a great conversation that we should do in our next video, oh. and you cited me down there. <laughs> that was awesome. your response. <laughs> good i'm glad i did that so um the first thing i would do is i would go find a commission-based sales job so you're going to work for someone i would want to work on commission and again i admit my superpowers to being broken and all of that is is i would go ham i would work twice as hard as the next person uh, i would get up early i'd stay late uh, i would not change my uh, living standards i would stack dry powder um, I think if you're 18 years old and you come out full of hustle, hustle, you know, you live, you know, with your family, if it's possible or in a shoebox, if it's not, you should, I, I think all 18 year olds should look to be financially free by 30, right? Assuming you're not an entrepreneur going that direction, go get a commission-based job, get a side hustle, find the one that clicks for you and, you know, be done by 30. That's what I would do. If I had to do it all over again, I don't think I'd get a college degree. I don't think I would. You know, I think it's interesting. Um, you had a commission-based sales job at Sears selling hardware when you were still in high school. Yeah, uh, and then you got your ninth, degree. ninth grade. Ninth grade. Right. Yeah. And so the advice that you give is is based on a similar pattern that you had, which is get a commission-based sales job and learn how to communicate, learn how to sell, learn how to work under deadlines. And the advice that I would give is a little closer to my experience. I would say that I think it's extremely important for somebody to consider at 18 joining the military or maybe becoming a police officer because i think that the discipline that you build the mindset that you get the ability to learn a hierarchical structure uh, is important and joining the military doesn't mean you need to be in there for 20 years and spend your whole life but you can do a four-year contract and you're still a very young person at 22 years old but now you have a foundation of discipline and so long as you weren't a total deadbeat bum you should have learned a lot about yourself uh and how to persevere and then from there, I would say moving into what Mike talked about with a commission sales job or any number of different entrepreneurial avenues. There's so many different ways to make money online nowadays. 
Um, but I, I think my experience is more attuned to what I did. And I think it would be an interesting conversation for the for Dion and the Lumberjack. What would their advice be? Because how close is it to what they did that they would give? So there's probably a lot of different avenues out there. And some of them are great. And some of them are probably not great. But my last piece of advice would be to pick somebody successful like Zuber and copy what he did. Don't go pick somebody who's telling you to do something when they've never succeeded themselves. Yeah, the last thing I'll say to a high school student, and this is probably hard to hear, but your friends suck. Go go find five new friends. <laughs> uh, that's why I hang out with you, the Lumberjack and Dion, and not the kids I went to high school with. Uh, okay, comment of the week. And I've been hoping to find a good comment from Dan Cohan because Dan Cohan comments on every single video that you make without fail. And yeah, you know, I, I want to ask about that because I've actually seen Dan Cohan on other videos. I don't think it's possible for him to watch all these videos. So I don't, is he, is it a, is it an AI thing that's going through the videos? Cause his comments are tied. I mean, the comments are tied to the actual content, right? It's topic related. It's topic. I, I'm thinking that's an AI model, but yes, yeah, so let's talk about Dan Cohan. I was going to ask you about that. Okay, well, you know what? I will. I hadn't like clicked on his profile to see if he's commenting on other channels or whatever. But yes, I I've think seen Ken, Ken McElroy and this other stuff. But anyways, I hope he's real because if he's real, he's watching a lot of content, and I appreciate it. All right, Dan Cohan, this one's for you. Down in the comment section below, the only way we know we can defeat AI is you have to tell a joke down in the comment section below. It's got to be a real estate related joke, and if you do, we'll know you're real. There you go. Anyways, the comment that he left. Did, hey, did you, did you ever see the movie Short Circuit? Mike, no. The it was made in the 1980s. It had the little robot that was like came to life or something like that. And the way that they proved that he was really alive was because he understood humor. That the robot was able to tell a joke. Anyways, for anybody out there who saw that movie, leave a comment down below. I loved that movie as a kid. Whatever. Dan Cohan's comment of the week was: Success in real estate, just like in anything else, boils down to working hard, staying committed, and being ready to adapt. Waiting for the ideal market might never happen but those who put in the effort and keep learning will do well well that sounds like your message in a nutshell right yeah i mean i i read all his comments i read everyone's comments i he is uh he yes that is my message said in a very clear and concise manner i wish i was that articulate well done dan <laughs> all right last comment for the for this segment uh, this is about real estate investors destroying the housing market. So last week, we read a comment from Royal Fisbin, and he gave us a very long, I read through the whole thing, it was long. Well, he responded in that video, left another very long comment, which luckily kind of got distilled down later by him. So I'm going to read something from him towards you. He, he was apologizing if he came off as sounding like a hater or something, because he's not. And you would apologize if you had assumed he was a crash bro. But he said, no worries, Zuber, I respect your position. But just understand that you and any other real estate investor equals his competition. The thing is, you're looking to increase your already sizable cash flow, whereas I am just a regular Joe looking for a place to live. When a real estate investor unleashes their capital on a property versus somebody rolling in with a mortgage trying to buy their first home, it's like you brought a machine, a machine gun to a knife fight. So, Mike, are you unfairly taking away opportunities from first-time home buyers? So I, I can't speak to all investors. So let's be clear. Um, there are investors that shop for the pretty clean turnkey stuff, but you can go back and look at my walkthrough properties. There's not a single property I have bought and, and flipped or kept that a first time home buyer could buy. They couldn't get financing. 
So no, I, I can't speak for all investors, but me personally, to his point, you and I are not competing in the same waters. You have to buy with a loan, which means you have to pass inspections and all of that. I don't buy that. I don't even look at that stuff, right? The reason I don't do that is because I'm a cheap SOB. And I want to buy something with cash and I want a super deep discount. So no, I uh, I completely, you know, if you're looking at me, which it sounds like he is, yeah. he and I are not in the same camp. In fact, you can go back and look at my playlist called walkthroughs and probably half the properties I bought were 90 days from being demoed. Demo, gone, out of supply. So I am actually creating first-time homebuyer stock. I do that on purpose because of my upbringing and how housing insecure we were. So no, I, uh, I, I take offense to that. It's not who I am. Not what I do. It's not what I've ever done. Uh, so no. But to his point, if he's talking me, the real estate investor in general, yeah, of course, I, I could see where he's getting at. I think there's a lot of investors who uh, chose the Airbnb route, short-term rentals. I think short-term rental demand, especially as it grew into neighborhoods versus vacation spots, that absolutely was because, again, what are they shopping for? They're going to go get a DSCR loan. They're going to go get as close to move-in condition. They're going to house it. So absolutely. So if he's talking about me, the royal investors, I think he has some validity. But if he's coming at me personally, he doesn't understand what I do. <clears throat> Mike, have you ever been outbid by somebody who's coming in with a mortgage versus you and your cash payment? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. If I happen to be sniffing around a property that a home homeowner could buy with a loan, I I'm outbid by tens of thousands of dollars. And again, I don't care. I move on to the next one. Right. So yeah, I, uh, I am never the highest, uh, highest bidder. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point to talk about because I think a lot of people, and I see these comments all the time, real estate investors shouldn't be allowed to buy properties. Being a landlord's not a real job. Landlords are parasites. You're destroying the housing market. You're driving prices up. You're taking away inventory. You're pushing single moms out on the street because you're greedy to which I say, well, yeah, of course, who likes single moms? That's a joke. That is a joke. Royal Fizbin. It is a joke. All right. Laugh in the comment section, YouTube, Dan Cohan. Uh, but the, the point I'm making is uh, there's a lot of people who I think really don't understand the talking points that they've been given from wherever it is that they're seeing this. Because the point you just made was these houses, a lot of these houses you're buying, no first-time home buyer would ever qualify for. No lender is going to lend on that nearly condemned house. No lender is going to lend. I mean, there's 203K loans, which will help you remodel a home, but not at the extent that you're going to. You are taking a house that is about to be completely eradicated and bringing it back to the rental market. You have not impacted the supply for this first-time home buyer. And then the next question that I asked you, which you followed up with, oftentimes the first-time home buyer can afford to pay more than you can. Now, that's an interesting topic right there, but you will not buy at a loss. That goes against your core principles. But a first-time home buyer can overpay or pay more or pay market or whatever it is, outbid you because they're not trying to make a profit on something. They're just trying to get into the house. So I think people are very undereducated on the topic 
as to whether or not real estate investors are actually destroying inventory and taking away their opportunities. I think that the crunch comes from a lack of supply, but that's often from the building side. What do you think, Mike, also adds to the fact that prices are high and inventory is low? Dude, the Fed broke the housing market. They just, they simply did. Uh, we went through, I mean, the housing market, and I don't have good news here. I now think the housing market's broken for a decade, right? I, I'm working with Lance Lambert, right? So Lance Lambert takes my ideas, for example, and he, he starts to, he always talked about the median price. He, he and I talked last week or the week before. Now he's looking at the low end and the high end and the middle. He's like, oh my God, San Jose, California, luxury market down almost 10%. The low end, record high. How can that be? Nobody's selling. There's no inventory. They're not making more. And oh, by the way, this isn't changing tomorrow or next year or the year after. Uh, the inventory of the the inventory for first-time home buyers has never been this low and likely will, will be horribly low for years to come. They don't have good news. The Fed broke the housing market. The only thing we could hope for is a builders build smaller entry-level homes which is happening. You could see the average size come in, but it needs to come in even more. Or two, you know, we have, um, you know, we just need time. And folks like me can go buy a dump. I mean, like Jason Pritchard and I talked yesterday. Uh, he buys somewhere between four and eight homes a month. The median home price in Fresno, let's call it 400. He's buying stuff between 150 and 180, maybe 190, because they're almost teardowns. We're routinely taking near teardowns, adding 50, 80, 100 grand and creating a new unit. That just needs to happen at scale. Uh, but, dude, it's hard to be a first-time home buyer. I get the frustration. I've been talking about it for a year. It sucks. I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's bad and, and doesn't get better in the near term for sure. Yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, what you got to be aware of is there is absolutely a problem. Like you said, their frustration is totally understandable. But I think that the po political political agendas and people who are screwing up things like the housing market uh, would much rather have us all point fingers at each other instead of congregate together and say uh, the Fed's busted housing, politicians are failing, and they're creating environments where it's very hard to build, and environments where there's so much regulation. I mean, I think it was you that was saying it was like fifty thousand dollars. In, into permit fees or something before you could even break ground on an ADU. I mean, if it, was creating... it was worse than that. It was worse than that. It was 50 grand to maybe get approved to break ground. It was like, you know, walking into a casino, putting 50 grand on black. And the answer could be no, I don't, forget it. No, thanks. And I was going to create two affordable units. Right. They took, they, you know, I'm like, are you kidding me? No, thanks. I'll just leave that lot vacant. It's okay. And I think that that is an extremely important thing to recognize for Royal Fisbin and anybody else who has this type of line of arg argument. Zuber wanted to create brand new units. Don't even exist. There's no way he's your competition. He is wants to go out there and break ground and create an ADU or multiple ADUs. And it was going to be $50,000 just to get the approval, just to break ground. That doesn't even include the building costs, the labor costs, the materials costs, the time costs, any lending you might have had on that, laying the utilities, laying the electrical, 50000 bucks just for approvals. If your local city or government or the politicians are creating an environment where there's so much regulation that you cannot provide housing, how can you turn to the investor and say, ah, you're causing the problem? What are you talking about, man? Ridiculous. Yeah, I, you know, um, 
you know, you get you get the frustration. Uh, all I can do is what I can do. And, and again, I feel good about I, I call them slumlord properties. So I do two things. Go back and watch my playlist. I turn slumlord properties into pride of ownership. That's what I do. Nobody can buy a slumlord other than cash buyers. And pride of ownership means it passes inspection. So again, I feel great about what I'm doing. I am creating housing stock, not I'm not compete. I would never compete with a homeowner. I mean, I'm so cheap. Yeah, not, <laughs> not happening. That's your second superpower. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. All right, Mike. That was all the questions we had for this segment. Appreciate you always for having me on. Man, I appreciate you. I still can't believe you do this for us. Uh, how can people find you? Yeah, if they want to follow me, I mean, I just released a video about a slumlord property that I'm currently rehabbing on my channel. It's Millennial Mike on YouTube or Instagram. Awesome. Thank you, buddy.